I will just recap that. And the principle of that the Quran must first be stood from its own self. Then the Quran Kareem must be understood in the light of the Sunnah and Hadith of Nabi Kareem Sallallahu Then third in light of that, Tafsir of Sahaba Kram, Tabin, Tabai Tabin, and then Mufassirun, the ulama of Tafsir. The important thing in that that we highlighted was that there's something that cannot be done which is called Tafsir bil Ra'i. And in that we mentioned to you the statement by Alama Qurtubi Rumulatala in his preface to his tafsir. And that is that sometimes there can be a person who already having what he called his mere personal opinion. So if you might remember, I called that MPO. And they approach the Quran with their own mere personal opinion, MPO, and they comb through the Quran to see if there's any verse that supports their position. So that is something that is not allowed. But no doubt a mufassir, and that's important for you to know also, in the classical tafasir, it's not just hadith, and it's not just the statements of sahaba, or tabin, or tabat tabin, but rather the mufassir himself engages in explanation of Qur'an. One famous example of that is called nazm of the Qur'an, which is the rupt between the ayat, and rupt between the surahs, or rupt between passages, for example, Allah subhanahu in Surah Kahf has mentioned several different stories. The story of Ashab Kahf, the story of Musa al-Islam and Khizr, and the story of Zulkarnain, and even a couple of other things a little bit in the middle. But why put these three things together in one surah? This is something that no hadith will tell you. No sahabi, there's no all statement attributed to anyone from the Salaf Salihin. But the ulama of Tafsir will talk about this a lot. And what they say is not necessary knowledge. If you remember, we explained that to you also last year. Qati, it's not necessary definitive binding knowledge. But it has actually does play a very positive role in contributing to our ability to take hidayah and understand and appreciate the story better and appreciate the surah better if somebody recites it on Friday that why these three different mm, stories are in this one particular surah. All right? Then, similarly, we talked about hadith scholarship. And there the critical thing was the notion of the daif hadith and to what extent a daif hadith can be used as a source of Islamic law. And there are many, many conditions for that. Otherwise, a plain, non-corroborated, non-verified daif hadith can... Hold on. That's my son. So non-corroborated, Zayf Hadith, which does not have any ta'id, anything else that supports it, cannot be used as a source of Islamic law. However, Zayf Hadith can be used for the most lightest and least intense thing in Islamic knowledge, which is for two things basically. One is some historical, we call it quiddity in English, some historical curiosity peculiarity. 
such as for example if you will find in all the Mufassirun use Zayf Hadith in order to sometimes give additional details especially for stories of past Anbiya so for example what is the name of the son of Nabi Nuh alayhi salam if you find that in a Zayf Hadith you can stick that in your Tafsir but you have to mention that and tag that and that means that this is just at a level of possibility or plausibility it's not at the level of certainty secondly a Zayf Hadith can be used for what's called a Fazila Fazilat means to mention the virtue, merit, reward of something. A Zayfadis can be used for that. And if it's not corroborated through other means, it cannot be used for anything more. Many Zayfadis are corroborated through other means, and therefore they are used for more than that. But that is a very detailed science, and to the best of my memory, and I couldn't remember exactly uh, whether I told you that last year or not, but I suspect I didn't because that would have taken me a couple of hours to tell you. And I don't think I would have spent two hours just on this particular thing. Right? And that's something that basically is a combination of the Hadith scholars and the jurists. And part of my PhD is on that, inshallah. And whenever that's done, maybe next year, we'll share some of that with you. Alright? Very complicated concept. Then we talked to you about Islamic law and jurisprudence. In that, the first thing was a chart in which we explain to you why you even need this concept of fiqh and sharia. Because otherwise, another possibility was that everything would simply be mentioned directly in the texts, in the Quran and Hadith. So what happens, simply speaking, is there's two cases in which you need something called fiqh and sharia. Number one is that whatever matter you're investigating and you want to know, is it halal, haram, what does Allah SWT feel about this matter? That matter is actually... Hubahu, as it is explicitly, not mentioned in the Quran and Hadith. For example, you work in a corporate job and your company takes out a provident fund or 401k or IRA in your name and they make some contribution, they take some deduction from you and there's some fund that's gathering. Now the question is, and that fund, you don't have access to it, so at the end of the year, do you have to pay zakat on it? Do you have to pay zakat only on your portion on it? You have to pay zakat on your portion and the portion that the company donated. And then when you finally get it, and then there's some profit attached to it, is that profit permissible for you? And then how would you pay zakat on that profit when you finally get it? There's no hadith that's going to... Uh, in of itself, there might be... So, so what happens here is then that there are going to be certain guiding principles. Sometimes called usul, sometimes called zawabit, sometimes called qawait. There's going to be some principle, some knowledge indicator that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala qareena pluralist qara'in some knowledge some indicator some principle that Allah ta'ala has put somewhere in the Quran and the Sunnah that will guide you to the answer to this question now this is the perfect example for you to understand the layman can't do this because your own self-reading of English or Urdu translation of Quran or Hadith will not enable you to even identify that principle let alone figure out how to apply that principle to be guided to the answer of how to pay zakat on your provident fund. Right? That's a specialist activity. Alright? That's a specialist activity. That's a scholarly activity. But yes, if you want to know uh, how many rakats or salah, you can... That's here, what I chose not to do, and this year, again, I'm choosing not to do it. Because if I do that, that also takes me a few hours, is to go into the whole discussion of mother and taqlid and why you need to follow a mother. 
uh, simply speaking because I think it's overdone. And you should just take my word for it. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Because what I want to do today is take you through into an interesting thing. Although I will do that for you a little bit uh, when he puts it up. I will do one or two slides with you on this issue. And that is that in contemporary Islamic jurisprudence, there's a lot of scope for what I call reform through renewal. Reform through renewal. Normally, so going back to something that we did yesterday, people present these two different categories, such as academic, polemic, faith, secular, etc. So the notion is that in Islamic law, you either do reform, which was a group of people called reformists, modernists, in Pakistan, Javed Ramdi, but he's you know, the, maybe the last of a long string of people in the Arab world uh, who might be lesser known to you, but who have already pretty much said everything he said. All right? uh, and then there are people who believed in renewal, which they called tajdeed, which was a going back to the classical traditional way. So I'm going to propose to you something which is called reform through renewal. What does that mean? That when Islamic civilization was ghalib, when Islamic civilization was ghalib, which we are, now we are maghlub, right? There are a number of uh, different ways any community, any ummah operates depending on whether they're ghalib or whether they're maghlub. Okay? When the ummah was ghalib, there was a lot more research, a lot more discussion, a lot more positive debate. Even the debates were positive, had positive outcomes. And that enabled the jurists, fuqaha, those who pass formal legal opinion, muftis, and the qazis, the judges of the courts of the entire Islamic ummah, for over 1,000 years, were actually trying to engage in dynamic application of Islamic law, that's called a qazi in accord. It actually enabled them to, no doubt with some lapses and some gaps, but overall, if you look at the first 1,200 years of Islamic history, with actually overall majority success and actually identifying the will and wish of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala on any and every matter across 1200 years across cultures. That's an amazing thing. There's no legal system in the history of humanity which has done so much. To end with such small sources, Quran al-Kareem is very, it's printed in a font. If you printed Quran al-Kareem in the font of your Urdu newspaper, then think how few pages it would be. Alright, even the hadith of Nabi Karim sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, if you take out the sanad, because the sanad has nothing to do with the meaning. It's the content and the meaning that's going to be used for driving Islamic law. And again, you were to print it in Urdu newspaper size font, it would also be a very mahdud amount of material. And to take that material, and to be able to identify, discover, extract, guiding principles and indicators that enables you to enact law, in every single aspect of law, criminal law, family law, constitutional law, personal law, every type of law in Nigeria, in African societies, in Southeast Asia, Indonesia, Malaysia, those societies in the classical Ottoman Empire, which included Albania and Bosnia and Kosovo and sort of white European Muslims, then all the Turkish realms, then all the Arab realms, Jordan, Morocco, then during the Mughal rule, the Fatawa of Alamgiria, right? This is an incredible achievement. This is an unsurpassed legal achievement in the entire human history of law. Alright? Now that was something that required the Ummah to be ghalib. 
when the Ummah became Maghlub, the first thing that happened, and this happened basically in the colonial era, was that you lost the courts. Now, when you don't have application, the legal tradition dies down. Just imagine if I had medical schools, but there were no hospitals and clinics anymore. So fine, I can keep teaching the medical degree, and people can keep becoming doctors, but there's no residencies. <laughs> there's no house jobs, there's no residencies, there's no clinical practice, there's no surgeries. So you tell me, <laughs> medical knowledge will be finished, right? But there'll just be some academics who sort of know that stuff. That's what happens when you took away the court system, when you took away the qazis. There are no qazis now. But the illa, mashallah, in the Mauritanian desert and a few places like that, you will find a qazi. But 95% in the Muslim world, there's no qazis. So the application of law stopped for about 150 to 200 years. You still have muftis, you still have fuqaha, but I think you can understand now. The cream of Islamic law was in its application. And the whole purpose of sharia is again application. So people can practically live a life that is acceptable and pleasing to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It's not just for academic knowledge. It's not just to teach you historical, intellectual, spiritual approaches to Islam workshop. Right? It's for amal. Amal. Amal is for practice. It's for practice. It's for practice. Alright? So now we're maghloop. So when I say renewal... By renewal, I mean to go back to that level. That even if we don't have the courts, but to resume the Qazi activity. And I'm going to show you a couple of examples of that. Because you will see, for example, in Pakistan, in particular, in every, not every, but in many other areas where the government has failed, you see the private sector has inserted itself. So public health care failed. MashaAllah, so many people made hospitals and clinics. Government education was lacking. So many people went made private schools and private education, right? So when there were lapses in the public sector, the private sector compensated. So if there's a lapse in the public sector in terms of dynamic research and application of Islamic law, the private sector should compensate and try to do research on these things, right? Now, yes, there won't be binding in a legal sense because it won't be a court matter, but still, it would show people and it would actually be able to, you know, repel the false propaganda of the reformists that Islamic law is something that's medieval or ossified or rigid or unchanging or inflexible or useless in the 21st century. Alright? Okay. Now, there are a few examples of that and I won't be able to do all of them in the morning. But I'm going to talk, about, talk to you about three examples. One which I will do in detail because it's different from what people normally talk about. The second you've heard a lot about anyway. And the third is something that I'm still in my idea lab mind. I haven't flushed it out myself yet fully. So obviously I can't teach that to you because I haven't examined it yet fully. Okay. The first one is land reform. First one is land reform. Second is Islamic banking and finance. That's the one I'm not going to talk about much because again... Especially in Karachi, there's so many people who give so many workshops on this topic. So I'm not going to jump on the bandwagon. Hmm? And the third is zakat. Okay? And this is something I think, if I'm correct, I mentioned to you yesterday, that there must be a way to more systematically, dynamically disseminate zakat so that outright poverty is actually eliminated. Right? And that requires more thinking than apparently has been going on in the past 70 years in this country. Okay, so we're working on that. That's another one of my personal pet projects. So the first one, are you ready yet or no? Hmm? 
First one is land reform. All right. So yeah, move, 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 move on. So this, okay. So go back so you can see the title. That's why I told renewal through reform cases in contemporary jurisprudence. Cases that exist or should exist, or I'm arguing that we need now to take up these cases. All right. You know why the United States Supreme Court is probably the most, you know, I'm not just saying this because I was born in America, but is the most dynamic, uh, juristic practice because of its structure, first of all. It's always, I mean, barring this last year of politics, it's always nine jurists. It's never more or less, unlike the Pakistani Supreme Court, which is in flux. I don't know, sometimes it's 18, sometimes there's less. There's always nine jurists. If you ever read a U.S. Supreme Court judge's opinion, it's one of the finest pieces of legal writing that you can find. The only thing that will come close to that is if you read the Islamic jurists the way they used to write in the, even just pre-colonial, you don't have to go back classically, even 1500s, 1600s, 1700s, 1800s, right? It almost seems as if after 1800, for 1200 years, 1200 years, Islamic law and jurisprudence was the most rigorous, refined, in-depth, academic research practice of law on earth. And then it switched from 1800 to now to America. All right? Somebody who's seen both would be able to appreciate that. Okay? So uh, you keep going. Go to the next slide. That's just the chart that I told you, that I showed you last time. Okay, so if you look over here, that you, that, well, the most right, top right, that you don't find the answer to the sources. Okay, so these are some of the things that we're going to be talking about today. You can go to the next slide. The next slide was simply uh, this notion, I was just trying to, and I showed you this last time, to carve out a space which shows you that there is a space that is exclusive for specialist scholarly juristic activity. And this is a space that individuals or laymen or people who have taken courses on Islam, they can't enter that space. And that is true for any system of law, all right? Uh, even law school graduates, even lawyers are considered something else. And Supreme Court justices in America and the way they can analyze, interpret constitution, past laws, past statutes, engage in what's called judicial interpretation is something that only they are viewed as qualified to do. And if you think about it, the United States is a country now of over 300 million people. So you're saying nine people, in fact, not even nine, five out of the nine, right? Because it has to be a majority decision. Five justices have been trusted and given that authority by 300 million people that what five of you nine seem to feel should be the law, we will accept that as binding over us. Now, if that's not an example of taqlid, I don't know what else you would call taqlid. All right? Because that's the nature of law. Do you understand? Law needs authority, it needs legitimacy, and it needs validity. Any type of law needs these three things in order for it to be dynamic. And if you keep constantly getting stuck on law 101, taqlid or no, taqlid or no, you're not able to move forward. You're not able to move forward. All right? But I have done that uh, in other times, but I choose to move beyond that today. All right? <coughs> so, next slide is in the last slide that I showed you from last time. No, no, go back. Yeah. After this one. Uh-huh. All right. So, Fahim, Ilm, uh, is it laser pointer? Okay. You want me to do it, you mean? 
This is the last thing I showed you from last time. So, fahim is something that I think every educated Muslim should try to have. And you should constantly try to increase your fahim, which means your basic understanding and comprehension of, and, and you know, eventually Islamic law, but first and foremost, the Quran, the, I already explained that to you yesterday, how to begin with the basics, alright? But ultimately, even as far as Islamic law and jurisprudence goes, it's not that we think that you should have zero fam of that. To whatever extent you can acquire that, you can. Alright? But the fakko, if you would say, is the highest level of activity. That is something that a lay person, ordinary person, even a person who has been attending durus, courses, workshops, part-time learning for 10 years, they cannot get something that is called the fakko. Alright? In the middle is something you would call ilm. Alright, at some point you have fahim and then you have ilm and then you have tafakko. It's not clear exactly that I can tell you overnight now you've moved from one category to the other. But broadly speaking, when you talk about Islamic law and jurisprudence, you can talk about three levels of knowledge. Alright? Not every alim is a faqih. Not every alim is a just like not every lawyer. Or even not every judge is of a Supreme Court justice level. Okay? All right, so now we move to the... So, just... Uh, Federal Sharia Court, Pakistan. So, the first thing I want to show you is very interesting. that, And I'm specifically using an example of Pakistan, obviously, right now. Is that, thanks to Zayal Haq, he actually, constitutionally, has embedded a certain way that you could renew the dynamic research and application of Islamic law through these two things, the Federal Sharia Court, and then I will show you the Sharia Appellate Bench of the Supreme Court. Now, that's not happening. Illa, mashallah, few cases that has happened, right? But at least there's scope. There's a way to do it. So if you look now at the ambit and jurisdiction of the Sharia Court, so this is now a direct quote from the Constitution of Pakistan. The court may, either of its own motion, so even the federal Sharia court has been given suo moto authority. To the best that I could find, and I'm not an expert in Pakistani law, so just take this as a work in progress, but the best I could find is never chosen to do so. Because you might know that the federal Sharia court is considered the backwaters of the Pakistani judicial system. When the powers that be don't like a judge, guess where they appoint him? The Federal Sharia Court. Alright? This is not uh, the cutting edge, uh, dynamic, uh, you know, people who are going to take so much notice of something. But it's amazing the Constitution has given them this power. It's an incredible power. If this had been exercised, you don't know how much could be done. Right? So either of its own motion or on the petition of a citizen, any citizen of Pakistan, any individual, any single one citizen, can file a petition to the Federal Sharia Court. Right? I mean, that's the scope that has been given. It's phenomenal. Alright? Or the federal government, the government can also do that. Many people think it's justice, that's why it's open. Many people think only the government can refer cases there. No, no, no. Or the federal government, or provincial government. That's pretty much every, anything and every level of initial way to initiate this body to engage in this research examine and decide the question whether or not any law or provision of law is repugnant to the injunctions of Islam as laid down in the Holy Quran and Sunnah of the Holy Prophet Sallallahu here and after referred to as the injunctions of Islam. In the Constitution then will just say injunctions of Islam, yani Quran and Sunnah. Okay? 
So, that gives you an idea of the uh, authority that is vested. And then, another interesting thing is that the decisions of the Federal Shia Court are binding on the high courts, high court in Lahore, high court in Karachi, Sindh High Court, Punjab Court, as well as all of the lower courts in the entire judicial system. That's how binding an authority has been given. Okay? Now, the origins that I've, I've already explained to you, uh, that this was something uh, that was initiated first uh, by General Zayal Haq. So, just so you know, if I take you to the next slide, this is the 1973 Constitution, Part 7, Chapter 3, Article 203C, Clauses 2 and 3A. Liking to be, at that time, copying the British way. So, the Constitution was used as very clause, sub-clause, chapter, oh, gee, structure of the Constitution. You should really read it. Uh, you should really read the It won't take you that long. You should really sit down and read the Pakistan Constitution. Alright? Okay. Next is the composition. Who will be the judges of the Federal Shia Court? Here, I suspect, and I have no way to prove this because I have no way to research this. I suspect that Zayl Haq or whoever was advising him may have had this sincere idea for Islam that we should form a body that makes sure all the laws are according with the Quran and Sunnah. But there were some people below him or in the law ministry or whoever else was drafting the constitution that didn't really want this. So interestingly in the constitution there is what I call a secular. You know we talks about checks and balances. There is a secular check and balance. In fact, this person brilliantly inserted one line. One line. Uh, I will show this to you, which is 3A. I, I told you I'm going to show you clauses 2 and 3A. Okay? 3A. Clause 3A has been brilliantly worded to nullify anything that the Federal Court can do. Okay? Now, why don't you see this? Common misconception. There are eight judges. Uh, Eight judges on the Federal Shia Court. And only three, only three can be ulama. Common misconception is that there are eight Muslim judges. Let me put this way. Common people. Common means in law professors at lums. Okay? Common misconception that the Federal Shia Court consists of eight judges. That they have to be Muslim. They can't be non-Muslim. And at least three must be ulama. Okay? Eight judges... At least three must be ulama. Okay? Now look at clauses 2 and clauses 3a. Clause 2. The court shall consist of not more than eight Muslim judges, including the chief justice of the Federal Shia Court, will have its own chief justice to be appointed by the president. All of them will be appointed by the president. Now this particular language, not more than eight Muslim judges, means eight is the maximum. There have been times I found in Pakistani history Recent, it's a very recent thing in the last 20-30 years or 40 years that the Federal Court has only had three judges has only had four judges has only had five judges it's very rare that it's even had the full eight okay it's had few number of judges okay yes that is correct all of them are Muslim and yes all of them including the Chief Justice are appointed nominally by the President but basically by whoever the party elites are of the party to whom the President uh, belongs Okay, so the first thing is that it's very rarely been eight. Okay, but look at clause 3a. The same, this whole double reverse negative. 
of the judges not more than four, not more than four. So maybe it could be zero, could be one, could be three, could two, three, or four. Shall be persons, each one of whom is or has been or is qualified to be a judge of a high court. The qualifications of a judge of a high court is in a separate area of the constitution. And not more than three shall be ulama who are well versed in Islamic law. Not more than three. It means it can be three, can be two, can be one, can be zero. And I have found long years of periods where there were zero ulama on the federal free court. Now when you have zero ulama, literally zero, there have been periods like that. In fact, as soon as Mufti Muhammad Taki Usmani was up promoted after just a few years on federal court to the Shriya court appellate bench, and another alim judge passed away, for several years there were zero ulama on the federal free court. And less than eight non-ulama, there were like three, four, five non-ulama. How are they going to decide this matter? When I told you before in the previous slide, to ex- to make use of this scope, you would need fuqaha. You would need really the most skilled Islamic legal minds to be able to do something like this, to assess modern or whatever post-colonial legacy British laws that are in this country and to assess whether they are in, in accordance with Islam or not. So these two clauses are designed in such a way and they have been used in this way. And then the other thing I found is that throughout the entire history, without any exception of the Federal Shriya Court, never have the ulama, if any were there even as judges, been a majority. And the court decides on the basis of simple majority. You understand? You see? Right? And another strange thing, which I should also tell you, in the English language media, especially Express Tribune and Dawn, there are constant calls to uh, abolish the Federal Shriya Court and dismantle the Federal Shriya Court. And this is a you know, medieval institution. And, and if you ask them then, okay, what, what, just name one case. What, give me the case that you object to. What's the ruling they made? That, what are your objections? There's no, it's just a media propaganda. As if this is some backward medieval thing. And the reality is that even if you object on a case, any case has been decided by non-ulama anyway, because the majority of every single bench in the entire history of Pakistan Federal Court, majority has always been non-ulama. So your objection is on regular, whatever, secular Muslim judges in any case. Right? But people don't know that. <laughs> people think Federal Court is like some Qazi justice system. It had that ability, right, in its creation and in its first scope, which I showed you, that it will assess every law and any individual citizen, any government. But clauses 2 and 3a clip its wings and clip its powers, especially when they're used in such a way. Alright? And obviously what it should have said is the majority will always have to be ulama, right? And what it could have done, it could have taken eight judges. There should always be eight. Five must always be ulama and three should not be ulama. That's how it should have been written. Alright, but it wasn't written and these things aren't coincidental because constitutional clauses aren't written randomly. They're done with a lot of deliberation, a lot of purpose, a lot of intent. So to speak, literally I would tell you the system is rigged, uh, biased towards a secular model. Alright, it's one of the best kept secrets because I'm telling you... (laughs) I have met extremely skilled advocates, Supreme Court, advocate, high court, law school professors who don't know these things. Alright? Because they also 
even being in the profession, also just believe this whole thing, that the fiduciary court is just a totally backward place, and nobody wants to go there, they don't want to ever argue cases there, they don't want to be on the bench there. Right? Interestingly, however, when it was, okay, well, because I'm going to tell you, the land reforms case came at the initial, um, you can say like almost inaugural years of the fiduciary court, and at that time, alhamdulillah, Justice Allama Mufti Muhammad Taqi Usmani was a judge. And his case on the land reform is published. Uh, and I have that. And if you read that, you will now understand what I meant. That either you read him or you read a U.S. Supreme Court justice and you will see what true legal brilliance and legal genius is. You read any of the other Pakistan I've met, I've met about one, two, three, four Pakistani Supreme Court justices in my life. Allah Akbar Kabira. Hmm? Ajeeb. When I went to visit the Islamabad Supreme Court, literally I'll tell you one of my LUM students who I taught Islamic law at LUMS, he was clerking. I said, you know, I want to see a case. I said, don't get me and I want to observe. He took me aside and, sir, I bought Prashanu He said, sir, you, as for me, he said, I'm too literally, he, I, won't, I won't take his name, but a couple of you might know him. He literally told me, I am too embarrassed to take you to witness the Supreme Court proceedings. I was stunned <laughs> that he said this to me. Hmm? Allah Allah though, because I didn't go, so I didn't see for myself, so I can't say. I can just narrate the story to you, and it's not fair to make a decision based on a single anecdote like that, but there must be something there for him to have talked to me like that. Alright? Okay. Now, so just to finish to tell you the thing that I want to talk to you about land reforms. So, I'm not so good at this actually. If I, is it done? I did all this for you? I can't see. Okay. So now you're in Sharia, Sharia Appellate Bench. Okay, the second thing that's in the Constitution is the Sharia Appellate Bench. Exactly the same thing in the Constitution to clip its wings. Watch this. What happens Sharia Appellate Bench? What does it mean that if a case is, uh, so before you read it, if a case is done, if a case is decided by the Federal Shriya Court and somebody wants to appeal it, so to where will the appeal go? So the appeal will go to the Supreme Court, but the Supreme Court will then have to establish a separate bench specifically to deal with those appeals, uh, those cases that are being appealed, uh, the appeals of those cases that were decided by the Federal Shriya Court. So that's called the Shriya Appellate Bench of the Supreme Court. All right? So now this is in 203F uh, of the Constitution, Appeal to the Supreme Court. For the purpose of the exercise of the jurisdiction conferred by this article, there shall be constituted in the Supreme Court a bench to be called the Sharia Appellate Bench and consisting of, now watch this, three Muslim judges of the Supreme Court, so it always will be three, not, not the not more, there will be three, and not more than two ulama not more than two ulama to be appointed by the president to attend sittings of the bench. Judge is something else and attend sittings is something else. To attend sittings of the bench as ad hoc members thereof from amongst the judges of the Federal Court, if there were any ulama who happened to be there, or from out of a panel of ulama to be drawn up by the president in consultation with the chief justice. The key words here is not more than two, which means what? Two one or zero. <laughs> and there have been cases where zero ulama were on the Shriat appellate bench reviewing an appeal of a case decided by a federal Shriya court 
bench, which also had zero ulama, all on supposedly Islamic law. Now, by ulama, I'm not talking about like I'm trying to defend the madrasa graduate. By ulama, I mean faqeed, the person who actually knows Islamic law. To prove this to you, I give you another anecdote. Once I was sitting in my office at Lums, and somebody came from Islamabad to meet me. A stranger to me. And the secretary, the law school department secretary told me that some person says, okay, come in. Advocate Supreme Court. He said that, sir, I got a case. This is a true story and I'm telling you this without any exaggeration, without even any embellishment. He came to meet me. Why? He said, I had a case to argue in front of the Shriat appellate bench. That I can't remember. I remember Shriat appellate bench of the Supreme Court. Right? And when I went there, so because it was Islamic law, so I did my research. Whatever the case was, I researched all of these books and I did this. And and he said, I didn't know these things myself. But he was an honest, upright, virtuous, hardworking, diligent lawyer. So he said, I researched all these things. And he said, I went into the court. So I started arguing on the basis of Quran verse this and Hadith that and Hanafi fiqh this and Fatwa that. And he said, the judge stopped and he pulled me into changers. And he said to me, Beta, kya kar do? And he said that, sir, I'm arguing the case. What are you talking about? What arguments are you making? Islamic law. He said, drop all these arguments you're making. Just go back out there and argue on simple basis of law. So he says, I went back out and I was stunned because I prepared the whole case and my whole line of argument on the basis of Islamic law, which I spent a lot of effort researching because I don't know that. So he said, I went back and I had to do what he told me. But he said, I'll give him jaza. He said, but now I'm so interested in Islamic law after researching it and I found so many interesting things. So I had heard about you and you are a professor of this. So I wanted to meet you and I want you to tell me how can I learn Islamic law and jurisprudence. Allah Akbar Kabira. Ajeeb. Right? I mean, there's an interesting story for many ways. Right? To show you, it shows you two things, right? That, I, that I've talked about. Number one, it shows you that there's no Islamic law going on in these places unless, you know, and I, want, I don't want to say Mufti Taki Usmani has been the only exception. It's not because he's Deobandi or Hanafi, but I'm telling you honestly, there's so few ulama who have ever been appointed, right? So few anyway. And from those few, he is, you know, really cut above in the level of dedication and if you just read his cases, all right? But there could be other ulama who could be appointed who would also do very good jobs. I'm not trying, but of the very few who have been appointed in history, all right? And the second thing it shows you is what I told you. That the, the, when Islamic civilization was ghalib, the type of legal reasoning, the type of juristic argument it produces is stunning. It's so stunning that centuries later, a totally, he was a regular, I mean, dekname, outwardly, apparently regular guy, right? A totally regular guy, probably secular background, advocate Supreme Court of Pakistan, even does a little bit of research for one case, he is also blown away by it and interested and wants to learn more. Alright? So don't think we don't. We have a great... But you're not aware of that. Right? And, and fair enough, like I told you, because that's not your field and it's not your job to learn classical Arabic and read, you know, Ottoman juristic texts and Mughal juristic texts and see how, you know, different Islamic courts operate in sub-Saharan Africa. But this is a whole field. People in Harvard, Princeton, Yale, Oxford, Cambridge do PhDs on this. They spend years learning Arabic. Then they spend years reading these things in Arabic. Then they spend another few years writing a 300-page English dissertation on these things. So there must be some 
serious rigor and depth in some field for you to do a PhD on that field in Harvard and Oxford. You understand? So it's there. <laughs> you just have to renew that. You don't need to reform. You just need to renew. You don't need to reform. You just need to renew. All right? Now what I'm going to show you is an interesting case. Uh, did it go? Okay, so now if we're gonna, I'm going to take a look at uh, this one particular person because from the very few ulama, also interestingly, he had 22 years in the system. This is Mufti Muhammad Taqi Usmani Saab. He was two years in the Federal Shriya Court and 20 years on the Shriya Appellate Bench of the Supreme Court. And in fact, all of his legal decisions are published in Urdu and you get it from Darul Karachi Bookstore if you're interested in those things. All right? Okay. So that's a, I mean that's a, an exception to everything I told you. Otherwise, hardly any ulama, ulama being for like six months, one year, hardly any activity even by them. But so this is the only case that you can look at as a researcher of, okay, let me really see what the output of an alim jurist was. Because you've got 22 years of case writings and opinions. I should also tell you, uh, so you don't think it's so much, there are very few cases that go in front of the Federal Fair Court, very few. And there are very few of those that are ever appealed in front of the Shriat appellate bench. Okay, So if there was a regular judge, 22 years would mean probably a whole encyclopedia of cases. But because we're talking about federal Shriat court and even less, like I told you, in the Shriat appellate bench, so few that you know he lives in Karachi and teaches here, he would just occasionally have to go to Sambad because the number of cases that in those 20 years came in front of him in the Supreme Court is very few. But still, over 20 years, it's still a few volumes and it makes very uh, fascinating and interesting reading. But it, at times can be very technical. All right? So now, land reform. Land reform is a concept. So first let me explain to you land reform. Now let's pause from Islamic law and jurisprudence. From a purely secular social sciences perspective, land reform has been viewed in political science and economics and public policy and development studies as something that's good. Something that's good. Now, this, basically what happened, if you look at the history, everywhere in the world, even Western Europe. So, basically, there was a, many centuries in the Middle Ages or the Middle Period, which is an age of what they call feudalism. And in feudalism, you had very few people who owned massive, I mean, I'm talking acres, hectares, or whatever it would be, even beyond that, massive estates, landed estates. In America also, these were these slave estates. I mean, the whole transatlantic slave trade was that you needed slaves. Why do you need so many slaves? Because you have hectares of land in Louisiana. You have hectares of land and you need slaves to work those lands. So whether it's America, whether it's Europe, whether it's Africa, whether it's India, whether it's Asia, this is the history, global history of humanity, right? Now, the way this sorted itself out in Europe was through this period of revolutions, all right? What happened is very just a, a very gross simple, simplification of European history is that basically feudalism led to mercantilism. The mercantile middle class then led these revolutions to take the political power. And over time, basically, uh, they were able to solve this through very violent, very violent revolutions. With a lot of blood and a lot of death took place in these revolutions. Now, this took place much later in the Muslim world. Why? Because maybe the Muslim world may have done something similar, but before it could do that, there was colonialism. Now, when the colonialists came in, they loved this system because they were the ultimate landowner. They want to hold their own country, right? 
when the colonial power comes, they basically become the landowner of the entire country that they occupy. So they kept the system in place. So it's only when colonialism ended, which is basically coincides with World War II, so you can think 1945, that all of a sudden now this becomes an issue. Now 1945 is way late in the game. Now all the other places like America and Europe have sorted this issue out by now. So now I'm just going to look at it in the Muslim world and now we're specifically going to look at it in Pakistan. So that what happened in Pakistan was that you had also, I think you call it Jagirdars and Nawabs, right? And Sin, you have to go outside the city to experience this phenomenon. And it's slightly different. It has a different style. In Sin, there's a lot of landowners. In Punjab, there's also landowners. In Balochistan, it's also there. In KPK, it's also there. But it's all a bit different where it takes place. Part of your political system is because of that. The reason, and I'm not, I mean, you know, any PPP supporters, I'm not commenting on that, but the PPP's vote base is basically the feudal serfs and slaves, basically, who modern type slaves, who work the lands. They will always vote for the candidate that the landowner tells them to vote for. So that's why people will always will send. There's just, it, that's, it's going to go on forever, right? Now, another thing in this country, which is a very interesting thing, because in other countries, I mean, I can't now, because otherwise then this will convert from Islamic workshop to political science lecture, right? But in other countries, many times land reforms were carried out by the military, because those militaries were actually truly professional militaries which had no landed interests. The Pakistan military is also in the land game. And they also are deeply, have deep landed interests. So they could not happen here. Otherwise, Musharraf's time, because you need to do land reform so late in the day, you need very strong man, authoritative, almost dictatorial rule. General Musharraf could have done this. In his time. But of course he didn't do it because whether himself or his other fellow buddy generals who propped him up into power were all big landowners, right? So he's not going to take on this big power group because he needs the support of that power group to remain uh, whatever he called himself. There was another word, right? There was president, general, and chief, chief, chief executive, right? All right? Okay? So, but what did happen in Pakistan is in 1959, General Ayub began this process of land reforms. All right. Now, this is probably the most, at least in terms of intentions, the most maybe one. Well, Allah Alam, because I don't want to, and I don't want to get into the Pakistani history politics thing with the Pakistanis. All right. But uh, but probably one of the better things or ideas that General Ayub had. Okay. Then in 1972, again under martial law, he promulgated this thing called the Land Reforms Re- Regulation, and in 1977 it became a Land Reforms Act. And it has a precursor to this in the British period, which is the Punjab Tenancy Act. It's just to give you a little bit, I mean, because again, I cannot convert this to a law, uh, a law lecture. Have you, are you seeing the next one? Okay. Just to show you this. Now, basically what goes on in land reforms? The notion is you take away the land of the landowner. This is where the problem is going to come now. Okay, you take away the land of the landowner. Why? Because you want to do land dis- redistribution. Now, one way is to make the peasant farmers who work the land owners themselves of small, small little farms, which are enough for their own themselves and their families' needs. All right, that's one way to do it. There are other ways also that governments do it. Okay, so what happened was that in 1959, two and a half million acres were claimed by the government. 
and 0.65 of those 2.5 million acres were redistributed among farmers. The condition was that the farmers were themselves small landowners, that they themselves only uh, had farms that were less than 12.5 acres. 0.2 million acres went to the government. Now, if you know your statistics or you know your math, there's a big discrepancy here. 2.5 million acres were claimed. 0.65 went to the farmers. The government says we only took 0.2, that's 0.85. And how many were taken? 2.5. So what's left is 1.65. I tried my best, and I even put this one economics guy on research on this, because I presented a paper on this once at a conference in London. We could not figure out where in the world the other 1.65 went. All right? Allah Akbar Kabira. Allah Right? Where it went. You know, because they just give these statistics to the government reports and that's it. There's no comment, there's no explanation, there's no footnote. And this is, you know, going back to 1959, there's nobody we can interview. Who knows? You know, but, but it's just also, it's the audacity of them to even just put this, I mean, you know, you're putting false figures. I mean, anybody could read this, right? Allahu Akbar, maybe that one, so critics say that that 1.65 went to the government, uh, to the army, Right? So then people started resisting land reforms and okay, if you're going to take it from me and give it to the farmers, that's one thing. So when this happens, but you took 2.5 from all of us and you only give 0.65 to the farmers and the army took this much and the government took such much, so then people started resisting the land reform, right? And as you can imagine, people start resisting it anyway because there's nothing more dear to a Pakistani than his land. I can tell you another anecdote about this, that once we went to go to buy some land, for our project in Lahore, Mahadla San. So I met this person, and literally, word for word, this is what he told me. He said, Zameen ma ki tarai. Koi apni ma ko bechtai. When I asked him, that we're coming to buy your land, literally, word for word, Satakar, Zameen ma ki tarai. Koi apni ma ko bechtai. means in English that land is like one's mother. Does anybody sell one's mother? So I told him, I said, let's just go, just get out of here. We just need to go. <laughs> just take me out. <laughs> I can't do this. And then I never went to any of those land purchasing things after that because he said, I can't, you know, other people have to do this. That's not my job. This is my job. You know, don't make me make these land deals. But this is what he said to me. I'll never forget it. Zameen ma ki apni ma ko Right? And that's selling for market rate price. Imagine what a person like that would feel. The government says, I'm going to take it from you and give it away to the poor. Hmm? Okay? So you can imagine that there was a lot of resistance. All right? Anyway, 1972, another 1.3 million acres were claimed. 1977, another 1.8 million acres were claimed. All right? Okay, because I'm not here. Okay. Yeah, how to put this for you? Okay. Just to show you how long these cases, and I'm sorry I put this slightly out of order for you. So there was a person, or a family rather, by the name of Kazalbash. They claim that in 1952, the reason is that they claim 1952 because I want to say that we did this before the initial Land Reforms Act by General Ayub. There's also no way to, because you know in Pakistan documents can be forged. The online audience is stunned. I mean, I'm sorry, but this is how this country is. Okay, so 1952, according to what they filed, they claim that before the Land Reform Act was done, we made a waqf, we made a trust. So it's not private property, it's 1,020 acres that we made into an endowment. So that was the way they were arguing in their case that this should not, it should not have been taken from them because if it's an endowment, then that was an exception and land reformers, they won't take the land that was made as part of an endowment buck or a trust. Okay? In 1977, nonetheless, 
uh, after that final thing, which I told you was the Land Reforms Act, uh, their uh, 102 acres were left with them, which is 10%, and 90% was taken away, of which, again, 250, uh, if you do 1,020 minus 102, that would be 918. 918 acres were taken, of which only 250 acres were given to the peasants, and the rest were taken by the government. So what these people did was they appealed to the federal Sharia court in February 1979. All right? And by the time the case dragged on, when Mufti Taki Saab came in 80, uh, he actually became the person who uh, was on the bench who actually uh, ruled on this case. Okay? So this is one of the earliest cases to come to the federal Sharia court. And it was exactly as a private citizen going to the court and arguing that the Land Reforms Act is against Islam. Why? Because Islam accepts private property. Islam accepts that if this is something that's your property, you cannot take away what's called ghasab. You cannot usurp somebody's private property, no matter how noble the intention might be. This was basically their argument. Okay. Then there were other cases uh, that people filed in high court. So somebody filed, some KPK landowner filed a case in the Peshawar High Court. And the Peshawar High Court declared, although the Peshawar High Court strictly speaking, constitutionally, cannot, doesn't even have the authority to decide what's Islamic or un-Islamic. If they want to address that question, they're supposed to refer the matter to the Federal Sharia Court, but without referring it to the Federal Sharia Court, they themselves declared land reforms to be un-Islamic. All right? So then the Kazabash guy then made that also part of his case, because that's what we call legal precedent, that, okay, look, the high court has also said it's un-Islamic. So therefore, I'm taking it to federal Sharia court. You people should say that it's un-Islamic, and therefore, I get my land back. All right? So this is just to show you uh, how this uh, case started. So are you now on FSC? Okay, sorry, I didn't show you this. I, I already told you this. And now FSC. Okay. Now the government, basically, who's suing the government, all right? So the government made two arguments in defense of the Land Reforms Act. Number one, uh, it's just two, by the way. Not two, I'm not presenting you two of them, any governments. They made two and two only arguments. So from the Islamic law perspective, so you would think now it's in federal Sharia court, the government should also, because now you're arguing the basis of Islamic law, they should bring in many verses of Quran, statements of Mufassirun, many ahadith, hadith commentaries, previous jurist opinion, past fatwas. No. One verse. That's it. Just one verse of Quran al-Karim. That's the level of the government's ability to argue its case in the Federal Sharia Court. And I don't think the government's ability has gotten much better uh, in the last 20, 30 years. Okay? What was the verse? That indeed the earth belongs to Allah. He shall bequeath it to whom He wills from His creatures. That's correct, right? But what does that have to do with the <laughs> Land Reform Act? Because... Allah Ta'ala didn't make the Land Reforms Act. You made the government made the Land Reforms Act. You're supposed to defend it. What they were trying to say, interestingly, although I don't think they even realize this, this would be what would be called pure classical uh, communist Marxism, which is that there is no such thing as owning land. That's what, strictly speaking, Marxism believes. Uh, and that was the Marxist ideal that you would move to a classless society. How? By moving to a landless society. Because remember, when Marx was writing, although it was after the Industrial Revolution, but still, class was basically based on land. So his idea and his dream was to make people classless, which that itself is a beautiful dream. Classless means there's equity between humanity, and that's a very Islamic concept. 
but he wanted to make humanity classless or society, any society that chose to be Marxist society classless through making them landless. And so there was no ownership allowed in private property. Now again, don't look at what the Soviets and the Chinese did. I mean, they're not Marxists, they're totally capitalist and the whole world realizes that now, right? But just because they didn't follow Marxism doesn't mean Marx doesn't change what Marxism is. Just like if a Muslim doesn't follow Islam, it doesn't change what Islam is. Islam is what it is, even if Muslims don't follow it. Marxism is what it is, even if Chinese and Russians don't follow it. All right. So, so this verse, and, and then the reason I'm mentioning this to you is because at this time, if you might remember, this was the time of Zulfikar Ali Bhutto, and this was the time of, you know, recently, I mean, now we're, it, we enter Zayalak's time, but it was just after the time of Zulfikar Ali Bhutto, and Marxism was very much in vogue and in fashion in Karachi and in the intellectual circuits. So the Marxists joined the government in this defense of the Land Reforms Act, and up till today, and literally, there were a couple of Lums professors also who used to... Up till today, the Marxists hate Mufti Muhammad Taki Osmani. Specifically, because of this ruling that I'm going to show you he's about to give, that the Land Reforms Act is indeed against Islam. And the reason I'm sure, And the second reason they gave is welfare. Right? Welfare in the sense that they tried to argue that in an Islamic sense, maslaha, public welfare, the public good, the greater good. Right? So one ayah and the concept of Maslaha, all right, that for the sake of public and societal welfare. All right. This is Taki Usmani's uh, reply. First of all, uh, he mentioned another verse that look, uh, Allah subhanahu has also said in Quran that to Allah subhanahu this is what we call Izami Jawab, that Allah subhanahu has also said to Allah Ta'ala belongs all that is in the heavens, not just the earth, all that is in the heavens and the earth. So now what are you going to do? You're going to do reforms of what lies in the heavens and you're going to re-allot plots in the Samawat just like you are claiming you're going to re-allot plots in the Ard. So this is something else. This is referring to the dominion of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, His absolute dominion and sovereignty over every single thing. This verse cannot be used to negate private ownership. This verse, the verse that they quoted, any more than this verse can, cannot be used to negate private ownership. Then what he did is he tried to bring them, he tried to do a reform and that they should be brought to a system of mudaraba. And he has a very long, several page where he talks about the abuses of the feudal the work, the peasants, the peasant farmers. And there's so many abuses, they're paid such, you know, horrible wages, they're mistreated and all of these, these are the things that should stop. In other words, he said that rather than take the land away from the landowner, you should criminalize their abuse of the peasant farmers and you should criminalize their economic subjugation of those peasant farmers by giving them such small compensation. And rather, they should move to a mudaraba arrangement where somebody owns the land and another person does the work and the profit-sharing ratio between the farmer and the landowner should be something that is what in our share we call ma'roof. You could call that for purposes like this an equitable and economically, marketly equitable uh, share of that profit. And basically he spends pages on this issue. Uh, but... Strictly speaking, the, the, the catch there, and this is why the Marxists were upset with him, is that that was just his opinion. The judgment is simply on this, is Land Reforms Act Islamic or un-Islamic? So his judgment is that it's un-Islamic. And the rest of his opinion, nobody followed that. Because he didn't have, and to be fair, I mean also constitutionally, that wasn't the ambit of his case. 
his ruling can only carry force simply on this matter whether the Land Reforms Act is Islamic or not. That's the only effect it has. All the other stuff he wanted would require like another act, right? You could call it, you know, whatever, Feudal Oppression Zulm Reform Act. And that would be then to make sure that the landowner doesn't do all the things, mistreatment and abuse that he says. But his own opinion doesn't carry that enforcing power. Although he wrote it, but none of that stuff was ever, never ever came into existence. All right? Then he does mention, uh, which are there, many hadith, because it is true, uh, I mean, it, irrelevant of however much it might dismay and disappoint the Marxists, but Islam does allow private property, right? Uh, now, no doubt that is one basic feature of capitalism, right? The ownership of private property. Ownership of private property in of itself is not oppressive, but remember I told you this yesterday, that those things that are at the level of permission can be abused, right? Now, it doesn't mean Islam will not take away the permission for that reason. So I gave you an example yesterday, for example, of divorce. Remember that Allah Ta'ala created the permission of divorce. And of course Allah Ta'ala knows that people will abuse that and misuse that and divorce improperly and wrongly and unfairly, right? But the permission needs to be there. And that's actually true in any system of law, right? When, when any system of law declares something legal, it doesn't mean that they're guaranteeing that the legality won't be abused. People will abuse it, misuse it, right? But they can't, we, they say, but we have no basis to declare something as illegal. So there's no shari basis to declare ownership of private property illegal. And on the contrary, as he mentioned, I told you, that's a whole book actually. And then he actually wrote another book on the topic, separate from his ruling. So you can actually read about two, three hundred pages on this, uh, on Urdu, in Urdu if you want. All right? Uh, there are actually many hadith that actually talk about mal and the ownership of wealth and the ownership of property and the ownership of assets and that Islam recognizes and acknowledges uh, ownership of assets. All right. Uh, then when they use the welfare argument, then the government, what they tried to do was extract or, or you can say like it wouldn't, not technically, but in a, in a way they tried to do qiyas, they tried to infer from the Islamic concept of zakat. And so, well, look, zakat is about welfare for the poor. And so we're just following the same, the, the spirit of zakat when we're trying to land reforms. So then obviously he said that when those zakat is, uh, doesn't negate the ownership of the wealth, it actually only takes place when you own the wealth and when you've owned it and you've owned it for one year, then you have to pay zakat. Right, the, the, this, zakat is definitely a welfare principle, but it doesn't negate ownership of wealth. And then another thing, which is a famous, is in Arabic is called mudara, uh, which in English is called sharecropping. And this is something, and there's another very interesting debate, even in very, very earliest uh, debates of Islamic jurisprudence, is mudara permissible or not? Okay. Uh, but Mufitaki Rasmani's position has been, and it's a majority position throughout history, that it is permissible. And so he gave some of those arguments as well. Meaning that there's something similar. And what's the closest, in, in jurisprudence we call this nazir. What is the close, you have it in Urdu, right? What's the closest similar case that we can find from the lifetime of the Prophet Wasallam or the Khulafai Rashidun or the Salaf Salihin, right? I mean, these are the, the Prophet Wasallam, Khulafai Rashidun, Sahaba, Tabin, Tabai Tabin. These are like the more authoritative legal precedents. So he found precedent of this in the time of Nabi Akrim, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, and 
from the Khulafa of Shadun in the time of Sayyidina Umar, anhu, that they allowed sharecropping means that you allow this arrangement that there's one party that owns the land, there's a different party that works the land and they share in the profit and produce of the product which is called the crop. All right? Uh, and there's more. Um, I, mean, just, I mean, just to show you, I mean, his is like a, a very long detailed reply to their little, you know, one verse and one principle of welfare. Okay? Now, uh, some features, uh, so that was his argument, some features about of his ruling. All right? And I explained some of this to you. Number one, that you cannot impose limits on private ownership of any goods. As if somebody, like for today, let's say somebody, some billionaire comes and he wants to buy, you know, one million acres. He's permissible. He can do that. Right? Now again, remember, permission is not the same as prescription. It's not the same as preference. It's not the same as recommendation. It's not the same as obligation. Because no doubt, other, other than the permission part, owning such large amounts of land is not in any way the preference of Islam or the recommendation of Islam and obviously is not an obligation of Islam. Right? Okay? And that and here, you have this principle of sadaqah, but that's voluntary. And, and sadaqah has always been and you can never make it compulsory. Right, but there's so many texts on sadaqah and mashallah there are, and there are some reports. You know, I don't know if you know this, but there are some reports uh, by you know American think tanks that Pakistan is one of the most philanthropic countries in the world. Right, but that has to be voluntary. You can't forcibly seize or confiscate that person's land. All right. Second is welfare is the responsibility of the state towards the citizens, not the private individuals. You know, if there's an issue that there's a welfare concern for the poor peasant farmers, it's not the job of the private landowners to see to their welfare, it's the job of the state to see their welfare. And then when he gives his analysis recommendations, like I told you, he tells the state, which is, again, it's outside the ambit of his case ruling, but he tells them that this is what you should be doing. There's other ways to fix this problem. Right? And I already explained that to you, what were the things that he did. So he suggests a whole bunch of other reforms. But the end result and effect of this uh, was um, that the Land Reforms Act was declared un-Islamic. Uh, and after that, no further land reforms occurred. Then one by one, the people tried to get their land back. It didn't always work smoothly, because obviously once the poor people had been given the land, they're not going to give it back. Uh, but the Ghazabas people, they got a, a fair amount back. Uh, and to be fair to them, because I don't, I've never met them and I don't know, but I would assume they were more interested in the 1.65 that was missing. I don't think they ever got back the 0.65 that went to the poor, and probably they weren't even that bothered by that. But this 1.65, and probably they were upset even with the point that went to the government. So the 1.85 is what uh, they must have been most upset about, and they got a lot of that back. All right? Now... This was something that I told you took place in 1981-1982. What I did later in that paper, and I, I'm not, I'll, do, I'll just explain it to you verbally now, is I fast-forwarded to 2016, which is 24 years later, uh, 34 years later. All right, 34 years later, Mufti Taki Usmani has been involved for the past 10-20 years in yet another area, which is Islamic banking, right? And that was another case. It plays that that's for a different thing. I can show you that also. I have those slides. But what I want to tell you about land reforms is that in the name of Islamic banking or for the sake of Islamic banking, 
he has developed perhaps a more refined toolkit now that he had at his own disposal in 1981-1982 when he was looking at land reforms, right? And what is that? So for the sake of Islamic banking and finance, which was to find some halal or interest-free alternative to all of these very complicated Western capitalist modes and modalities of investment financing, he has done a couple of interesting things. And interestingly, then there was a whole group of Newtown ulama who wrote a book critiquing him for doing it. Then he wrote a whole book in response to it. That was another interesting thing that happened as an anecdote to show you. Once a lump student came to me and he wanted to do a senior project on Islamic law. He says, I want to look at some recent debate. I said, okay, read these two books. And I hadn't read them. So it was just these things that just come out. I said, you tell me which one you think is right. So I actually read the book in Urdu that all these Newtown ulama wrote critiquing Mufti Tikisab. And then he read the book that Mufti Tikisab wrote in response to them, and he came to me in the office, he said, it's a clear-cut, completely one way, he said, there's no question. He said, this one person has answered everything and everything they have said. He showed all the fallacies and flaws in the arguments. There's just no, there's nothing much to write about. I said, but just write that. So he wrote his whole senior project on that. All right. But in his reply, what I found, and I, you know, someday, you know, when I get a chance to sit with him on... uh, more beneficial things as opposed to other things that I talked to him about these days. I plan to raise this with him. In that book, he talks about a lot of things that he didn't do for land reform. And that is, number one, that what we call iftab bi bin akhir, that you can legitimately use positions of maliki fiqh and shafi fiqh and hanbali fiqh for this greater purpose of the war and interest, right? And so he has done that. He has gone beyond Hanafi fiqh, which is one of the reason, one of the critiques, not the only, but one of the major critiques that the Newtown ulama wrote against him. So he defended himself against that, saying that no, there are certain cases when you can't. And that's another thing I wanted to show you, right? That no, when required and when needed, and to the extent needed, we do say you can go beyond Hanafi fiqh, right? And that's, if you didn't do that, you wouldn't have had this Islamic banking and finance. And there's a whole other areas of cutting edge usul that he's used to do this. What I wonder, and one day if I ever get a chance to catch him totally free and sit down with him, is that if he takes this new toolkit and goes back to the issue of land reform, he might actually come up with a better way and more interesting Islamic ways to figure out what to do because the issue is still there, right? We still have the fuel system, we still have the oppression of the peasant farmers, we still have the horrific conditions. Everything now is exactly as bad as it was uh, 34 years ago. And maybe with this new toolkit, uh, the, the problem is he's out of the system. That I'll explain to you when I do the second set of slides. He's been deliberately removed uh, when he was taken out in 2002. There was a reason for this. This is General Musharraf. He was deliberately removed from his position due to the interest issue. All right. Uh, so, I don't know if I should do this for you, but one of the things that we did explore in our paper, but to be fair to him, it's not his fault really, but part of it is class. You know, When you have capitalist uh, factory owners and rich people come to you as a mufti and tell you that we need you to devise a system for us, well, you know, there's a certain, well, not saying that you're going to take money from them, but there's a motivation to do it, right? Because basically they're more of a power group, right? And there's nobody who speaks for the poor. I, I know personally several 
you know, rich factory owners, businessmen who go to muftis and try to tell them, you know, try to make Islamic bank, try to make Islamic investment, try to make this. Who has ever even gone to Mufti Taki Sahib as a spokesman for the poor? That's one thing I want to do, right? And tell them to do something for the poor, right? So part of it is that a lot of these things are demand-driven, as we so, so to speak. As many things are, right? A lot of research in the world is demand-driven. If a pharmaceutical company tells Harvard Department of Biochemistry that we're going to give you a million, ten million dollar grant because we need this drug, we need this medicine, right? For some reason, okay, the Harvard Biochemistry Department will get to work on it, right? But if they don't get that grant and they don't get that demand, they might not work on it on their own, right? So the capitalist class of this country, and the good ones, I mean, in a good way, the pious, mutaki, saleh, capitalist class of this country went to the different ulama muftis repeatedly, persistently, over decades with this demand that we need you to come up with halal ways of investment and finance. And nobody's done that on behalf of the feudal poor, right? Uh, and again, because, you know, because, you see, Mufti Taki Sahib is not a full-time qadi, right? The full-time qadis would take the suamoda notice and realize what's going on with the poor anyway. Right, but I already explained to you we've, we don't have that system anymore. You don't know how much you know. Liberals don't know how many liberal values and progressive goals would be fixed if we did what I told you. Reform through news. There's a perfect case of this. There may be a lot. There may be no force other than Islamic law. Uh, don't worry, Baki Ablok Mirideklin. Alright? So we, uh, there might be, I feel, the only hope for the feudal poor is Islamic law. Right? But we need somehow to activate that. And unfortunately, sometimes the reason why legal research is not activated is because if you know there's no enforcement, so if I go to Mufti Taki Usmani, as a Mufti, and I tell him let's work on it, he says, who's going to do it? We can find, we can spend days and nights and months cooking up and designing the perfect way to address the issue of the oppression of poor by their feudal landowners, but nobody's going to do it. Over here, we had private sector people saying that if you design for us, the bank will build it. So Mizan guy, he built it. We have people saying that if you design for us the sukuk, we'll buy it. We have people saying if you design for the Masharika contract, we'll start using it. We have people saying if you design the Madarba way of business, we'll change our whole business on it. So it's not just about the demand, it's also about the execution. So to be fair to him, it's like, well, what, what should I work on? Here I can see follow-up and follow-through and project execution taking place. So I'm going to work on that. Here there's nothing. you know. And then I might know even better than him. He's right because from political science, he would be even more right. Yes, nobody cares about the poor in this country. And all of the interest groups, whether army, feudal, capitalist, everyone would resist this project, right? Uh, and, and the politics, like I told you, because the political parties are dependent on this fuel control. If the day you end feudalism and sin is the day you end PPP's monopoly and sin. Right now they have to win on their own merit on the basis of their platform, their policies. They could still win, but they have to do it the right way. They don't have that guaranteed voter bank anymore, so they would also obviously resist this. Right, so that's the sad thing. So that's another thing that when not to tell you another controversial topic, but now you'll understand it. This is why you need Islamic law and the state together. Right, this isn't some radical concept, because without the enforcing capacity of the state, Islamic law loses its teeth. 
right? Now, yes, here there was some enforcement in the private sector, and as I would show you in the ruling of interest, there was some enforcement in the state also, right? Which created the space for Islamic banks to operate. Here, on the issue of the poor, and in terms of land reform, again, now we wouldn't do land reform, but we'd find a way. The problem that exists, land reform is one way to solve it. Islamic law will find a different way to solve it. That solution won't take place because we don't have the state. There is no enforcement mechanism. There is no implementation mechanism. Not this, forget state. There's no actor in the state. There's no political actor. There's no vested interest. There's no power broker at all that cares about the poor in this country. So that's why you need the state. So now I've shown you why you need Islamic law, why you need a state, that ne- and why the state needs Islamic law. All right? Otherwise, a lot of the good things and the great things in our deen won't be implemented. So the solution to this is is renewal through our own legal tradition. That's my position. As opposed to political parties or making tanzims or trying to establish khilafas. It's never going to happen, right? Now the people who had these ideas, they had ikhlas, no doubt. But if you look at it honestly, they haven't even moved one inch closer to establishing a khilafah. It's just not possible. Right? All their ikhlas couldn't do it because you need, you need more than ikhlas when it comes to fixing the world. When it comes to fixing yourself, fixing your akhirah, fixing your relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Maybe that's something I'll open up for you in the afternoon session. Sometimes ikhlas is the be all and end all. But when it comes for the other thing that people talk about, the social reality. Remember I told you the fourth thing in deen is social reality? When it comes to fixing the social reality, ikhlas is a necessary but not sufficient in of itself condition. You need to do it the way Allah Ta'ala guided you to do it. That's called Sharia. That's called Sharia. So when you hear the word Sharia, don't think some medieval barbaric code. Sharia is the way and the path to attain social economic justice in any reality, in any culture, in any society, in any time, according to the will and wish and guidance of Allah Subhanahu Ta'ala by a person who has ikhlas. And when you don't have Sharia, then... You can't, you can't touch feudalism, you can't touch corruption, there's so many things you can't touch, your, your hands are tied. You've voluntarily tied your hands from using a system that is revealed by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in His infinite knowledge and His infinite wisdom and His infinite mercy, Al-Aleem, Al-Hakim, Al-Rahim, as His hidayah for us. Alright? Now the reason I'm stressing this now, so I use all these words, Islamic law, state, sharia, is because other people use these three words for these radical extremist concepts. So we should not shy away. In fact, it's very important that ulama should explain the proper understanding of these concepts. Otherwise, even many religious people, they are religious, but they don't want to hear the word Islamic law, they don't want to hear the word sharia, they don't want to hear the state. Because they feel like that's the radicalists. And me, I'm the, you know, whatever, normal person. No, no, why are you giving up? Why are you abandoning all of Islamic law and Sharia and state to the radicalists? Understand? And it's not like we haven't done this for 1200 years. That's a huge. Allahu Akbar Kabir. That's longer than Roman Empire, longer than Byzantine Empire, longer than Persian Empire, longer than Chinese empires, longer than their particular Han dynasty and particular dynasties, and way longer than United States of America, right? I mean, I say Sir Mark, the only time was going through the Great Depression. It really became the superpower shortly before and then due to World War II. It's not even 100 years yet. Not even 100 years. We had 1,200 years. We did this. 
In the history of this ummah, we did it. We made systems of law which enacted and established sharia and justice through sharia across different cultures and societies over 1200 years with, like I told you, definitely very noticeable and serious lapses and gaps as well across time and across places. But overall, it was still being done. If there was a gap somewhere here, it was being done somewhere else. Right? There's no place in the first 1200 years, there was no time in the first 1200 years where you could say there's not happening anywhere. Like, to, like our current condition is like that. In our current condition, there's no place on earth. And this is how you should frame it. Not no place on earth where thief gets his hand cut. That's there, that's Saudi Arabia. There's no place on earth where Sharia is being used to enact social and economic justice that Allah Ta'ala wanted as part of His Hidayah for humanity. That requires much more than just cutting a thief's hand off. Alright? Okay? But it's there. <laughs> it's there. And we did it. It's in our history. Alright? So this is what I call reform through renewal. Not reforming Islam. <laughs> reforming society through the renewal of Islamic law. Not reforming Islamic law for the renewal of society. Hmm? Reforming the ills in society and economy and polity through the renewal and reenactment of Islamic law and Sharia. Now, uh, now what to do? Tell I can do this very briefly for you. You can go to the next slide. I'll just show you the interesting. Uh, oh, sorry. Okay. Right. Okay, 1991. So now I move to a second case, right? The first case I was going to do in detail for you, which was land reform. Second thing I told you I would do briefly. And the third thing I just wanted to give you this idea about zakat. All right? Because zakat is something that I think could be a private sector initiative. Land reform can't take place without the state, right? Uh, this also, uh, although it's being done to a certain extent in private sector, one of the critiques people have about Islamic banking and finance uh, is that it has not brought about a change in the welfare, which is also something that a truly Islamic economic system can do. And that is correct. It will not bring about a change in welfare until it's done at the majority level. To, for it to be done at the majority level, that can't be done without the state. Yes, it can be a minority level of accounts and capital and b banks. That can be done through private sector initiatives, individual people who want to do toba from riba and open up Islamic bank accounts or businessmen who want to make toba from interest-based financing and move to Islamic financing. So it will have that huge, that is itself a huge, tremendous, enormous success that at least... There's a path out, and this is the greatest achievement of Shaykh Al-Islam of Taqi Usmani that he created a path out of sin. This is itself Tajdidi Karnama. This itself is an act of renewal, that there were people who were stuck in sin with no way out. They, people would say, you know, I mean, they wouldn't come to me because I wasn't alive then, but I'm assuming, and I can imagine, that people in their 60s, 70s, and 80s would go to him and say that we're, we're businessmen, there's no way other than interest. You cannot operate other than interest. There's no other way. So he listened and he got them a way out. This is tajdeed of deen. This is fardul kifaya. This is the level of work that he did. Right? Now that next thing that people want, that this should transform the society in terms of welfare, that won't take place unless the vast majority does it. Allah Ta'ala's barakah is not going to come when that minority make toba. 
Allah Ta'ala Barakah comes in a society or a country when the vast majority make tawbah and there's only minority that are left in that sin. And as all of you know, no matter how much Islamic banking might be growing, the vast majority of people are still, the vast majority of people are still in businesses and companies and etc. are still involved in the sin. Alright? So there also you need the state. The third thing that I told you was zakat. Uh, zakat's ability to eliminate poverty in the whole country, that would also need the state. <laughs> but at a micro level, maybe picking one particular busty or area and figuring out a way to apply zakat to them in such a way, not just that they get their medical care or they get clothes, but you actually change over time, it will take time, over time, you uplift their income level. You take them out of the class that is known as the ultra-poor, right? That could be something that could at least be applied on a micro level by private sector initiative and then could be replicated and might even one day could even attract the interest of the state. And if the state starts doing it, then it could, inshallah ta'ala, eliminate poverty in the entire country and eventually in the entire ummah. So it could begin at least as a private sector initiative. Much like the Islamic banking and finance has begun like that. And now it's enough. They have all the research done, practice, experience, documents, blueprints, that were the state ever to adopt it, it could be used all the way. Alright? Now, so now just to show you a little bit of the, so to speak, politics of uh, Islamic law in this country. So what happened in 1991, the Federal Shreya Court, again a case came in front of it, uh, and following its constitutional mandate, it had to decide whether uh, interest was repugnant to Islamic injunctions, yani the Quran and Sunnah. So 1991, Federal Shreya Court passed a decision that interest and any and all laws pertaining to and facilitating interest are repugnant to the Quran and Sunnah Islamic injunctions. All right. Now what happens? Immediately, the banks filed an appeal. Immediately. The banks filed an appeal, all right? When the banks filed an appeal, if you look at the date, these things, uh, you know, generally in, it's a feature of the Pakistan judicial system that things drag on. And when very vested power brokers, vested interests want something to drag on, so it drags on until 1999, all right? Eight years, the appeal is dragged on. Which means that, you see, once it's appealed, then the federal Sharia court justice is suspended because it's called pending appeal, Otherwise, it's supposed to immediately become law. Like I told you, according to the Constitution, all the lower courts have to follow it. But once you file the appeal, it's suspended, held in abeyance. So from 1991 to 1999, all the banks continue to operate freely because the decision was suspended. Now, what's, what's supposed to happen, according to the Constitution in any other country, once the Supreme Court hears an appeal and passes a decision, it's finished. That's it. That's it. But you're going to watch how, and I will update you further actually to some of the latest stuff uh, that has happened. Oh, you can't see. I have another, they can't see this. Okay. There's another line here that you can't see, which is says as of 2015. Can you see it on your on your laptop screen? Open Open up the other view. Not the full screen view, the regular view where you can see the menu and all that. As of 2015. Here it's just one line. Okay. So 1999, and this, you can also read this. Uh, Mufsid Taki Usmani Saab was not alone, but he was uh, 
the one, remember, not more than three, he was the one alim on that three-person mm, Sharia appellate bench. Uh, and then they decided, uh, and they passed, and they uh, heard the appeal, but they upheld the federal Sharia court ruling, and therefore then, according to Pakistan's own constitution, and any legal understanding in the world, it now should immediately become law. All right? Now, fair enough, what happened was that... Uh, yeah, okay. So, 1999, appeal heard by the Shri Appellate Bench of the Supreme Court upholds the FSC, means Federal Shri Court ruling, and bans interest in all its forms and by whatever name it may be called. This was also the Kamal of his, you know, learning that these people use language and semantics to get out of things. By whatever name, any profit, because there were people operating things called PLS, profit loss sharing accounts, back before this, and that there was just, you know, a uh, marketing ploy to dupe you, basically, and fraud you, and make you think that it wasn't interest. All right? The ban's interest in all its forms and by whatever name it may be called. As a consequence of this judgment, certain laws will cease to take effect, meaning laws that were facilitating, pertaining, allowing interest, from 31 March 2000, some other laws from 31 July 2000, and all other laws permitting or condoning interest from 30 June 2001. So that's also fair enough, and that also shows a very sophisticated legal understanding of his, that you need to roll out things, and when you're making such a huge change, then you have to do in phases. To give you a contemporary example, when the UK is going to leave the EU, it takes time. <laughs> These things take time. So they basically have exactly like this, set certain benchmarks, certain timeline, until the complete withdrawal of the EU takes place. So just like that, uh, a complete timeline was set by the Shreya Appellate Bench, through which... Uh, so if you go from 99 to 2001, basically about two years timeline was given. All right. Then what happens, uh, as you know, at this time, uh, it was the general uh, Pervez Musharraf. So when 30 June 2001 came, uh, it wasn't all finished, right? And now he was in this awkward position that there is a standing Supreme Court ruling saying that it's all over now. Right? The timeline is finished. We've reached the last date. And there's a justice still sitting there, Mufti Taki Usmani, who passed this ruling, and he's talking about this, that the date is expired. So what does he do? June 11, 2002, Musharraf removes Mufti Taki Usmani Saab after 20 years of service from the Sharia Appellate Bench of the Supreme Court of Pakistan. Now, another interesting thing that happened, if you remember your Pakistani politics, uh, there was the whole you know, judicial crisis that took place at this time. And there was the PCO judges, if you remember this, right? And then people didn't like the PCO judges. And finally, when Musharraf is removed, then your Chief Justice Iftikhar Chaudhary, remember that fellow? So he comes back, he gets rid of all the PCO judges. Remember the provisional constitution of the judges who took oath under Pervez Musharraf? He nullifies all of them, right? Okay. Now, uh, the next thing that he does is that on June 24. Just look at the days, June 11 and June 20. In 13 days, this shows you, I'm not, it's not conspiracy theory, it's not possible, nothing moves this fast. Go back from 91 to 99, eight years it took just to do the appeal. Within 13 days of the removal of Hazrat Mufti Taki Usmani Saab, another bench, new judges were appointed, and within 13 days they decided to suspend the ruling. How did they suspend the ruling? They came up with a unique idea which has no constitutional basis, that we will refer it back to the federal... 
It came up to you already. It already came to you from the Federal Court. You already have a standing decision on it. They came up with this thing that we will remand the case back to the Federal Court so they may give further. They may re-examine this and whether it is truly against injunctions of Islam. Within 13 days. Okay, then now fast forward. When Chief, and I didn't put those dates for you, I don't remember what those dates are even, but it's after this, it's several years after this, whenever it was that Musharraf, those of you know Pakistan, whenever Musharraf leaves Chief Justice, right? When Chief Justice Iftikhar Chaudhry, the first thing he should have done, that he did, is remove the PCO judges. The second thing he should have done, if there's any way that Musharraf interfered with the proper working of justice, he should have turned that back the very next thing he should have done was this. And he should have said, this Supreme Court ruling, which was made by those PCO judges on June 24, 2002, to remand the case back to the FSC, we as the current Supreme Court declare that null and void, and the act is back where it was, according to proper legal norms. But Chief Justice Iftikhar Chaudhary, despite all his Harvard awards and all of his global fame, did nothing of the sort. What would that mean? He's also just a puppet of these bankers and these power brokers and major financial players, right? Because judicial integrity demands that all... I mean, it's not once or twice. This person spoke repeatedly against Musharraf and he presents himself at that time and still to the world as the justice of integrity who rolled back everything that the military dictator did except this. Why not? Why not this? Why not this? All right. Now, from 2002... As of 2015, I will tell you the latest. From 2000 to 2015, 13 years. As of 13 years to 2015, the case was pending. Now again, when it's pending, so this law which is supposed to from 30 June 2001, according to a Supreme Court ruling, all the laws have to immediately cease to exist. Immediately, null and void. That is still suspended because for 13 years it's been pending. What happened in 2015 and 16, and I don't know the latest... Maybe Mufti Jakura knows anything more than me, he can pitch in. But as say then, now the government, and particularly uh, UBL, I want to name them because I have one document. Uh, UBL, United Bank, is that what it's called? So they hired this fellow, Saman Akram Raja. Some of you might know him. I also, I will name him because he's chosen to be the lawyer for this and it's a, public, a matter of public record, right? So Saman Akram Raja, and then along with a bunch of other lawyers, are preparing... Uh, a argument, there's nothing I should probably talk to us about, but a preparing uh, a deep argument, looking at Al-Azhar, looking at Mr. Javed Ahmed Ghamdi, looking at other people who, you know, believe interest is fine, basically, right? And trying to, in a very, very elaborate, not like that old, you know, just one verse of, no, 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 no. But the, the Samana Karmaja guy knows his stuff, right? So, very elaborate document and argument is being prepared and when they feel they are ready this Allahu Alam now what's going to happen but I don't know if anything has happened in the last nine months because the last I kept track of this was like until 2015 I don't know what happened in 2016 uh, to the best amount of the case hasn't happened but they were preparing for the case uh, and then uh, and again the case would be in the federal Shriya court right now what would happen let's say they lose right or let's say they win either side will appeal Right? Let's say they win and the Federal Share Court decides, okay, it's not against interest. Interest is not against injunctions of Islam. Okay? Then obviously, 
people like us will appeal, right? Or Muftakisab will get people who will appeal it. Now, how long will that appeal take? It could take 10 years, 20 years to help by the Supreme Court, right? If they lose, they will appeal, right? So either way, they bought their time, all right? So this is also what I was trying to tell you with the second part, that the reason Islamic banking and finance is not going further it's not because the ulama mashaik don't want to go there. We want, we want Madani financial system. We want to take it all the way. But you can't do that without the state. And I've showed you the state's obstruction of the process. It's right there for you. Okay? So the state is obstructing and preventing the process from going any further. So basically then it's going to be limited to a minority level of finance in this country, which is a private sector initiative, but don't underestimate that still, at least it's a way out of the sin and the evil of riba, right? And that is a big thing. Sometimes we used to, when we used to teach this university, we'd say, look, if I get you out of the bathroom, it's a big thing. I got you out of Najasa. It doesn't mean I took you all the way to Medina Menorah. I just got you out of the bathroom. That was one big journey. That was one big journey. Now the next step is now that you're out of the bathroom, you're out of Najasa, to find the most purest type of purity. And that would be Madani financial system, right? But that, you know, that requires a complete overhaul. And a complete overhaul can't be done by the muftis. A complete overhaul has to be done by the state, by the government, by the stakeholders. Okay? But that can be done. That's the beauty of it. It's not that it can't be done. And and now, for some people, they will have to take that as part of their faith in Islam. But I'm telling you, this is what Allah Ta'ala is Al-Hadi. His sifat of Adl and Hidayah are there in the Quran and Sunnah. It's not that it's just his own intrinsic attribute. He has manifested his sifat of guidance and justice through this revealed religion of Deen of Islam. Alright? Any and every type of justice, fairness, equity, it can be discovered and adopted through the hidayat that is known as deen of Islam. Alright? So it's not that it can't be done. It's not that the ulama and muftis don't want it to be done. But it's not going to practically happen without the people to make it happen. Alright? Uh, that's about it. Uh, so we'll end it just a few minutes early today. Um, And then what I'm going to do today also is we'll take all your questions together at the end. So today I tell you I want you to go a bit early uh, for Dhuhr Salah. Alright, so we're going to end now. Five minutes out of schedule. Uh, and the rest of the schedule will stay like it is. And then we'll zoom at 2.15 inshallah. Alright, and maybe I'll, I will share with you a little bit of the zakat idea uh, before then I move to the afternoon's topic. Jazakumullah khair wa akhirudana. Salaam alaikum wa rahmatullahi